by that point, everyone knows that the Tudor dynasty is is over. He he has to watch his son slip away from him. Um, it's a real it's a real tragedy. The Tudors were very much dependent on on the Dudleys, the women stepping in to to essentially clean up the mess and and to ensure the family's survival uh, and and position. I thought the story was beautiful and compelling. I I I, I cried as I was writing it more than once. Welcome to the British History Channel and to our latest historian interview. If you've been here before, welcome back. If this is your first time, hi, and I hope you enjoyed the interview. And also, if you do look back, we have hundreds of videos which may be of interest. So today I am talking to Dr. Joanne Paul. Now, over the summer, I read Joanne's book called uh, The House of Dudley. And if any of you have been watching any of my live streams, you'll know that I've been raving about it ever since. Um, I mean, it, it follows the heady heights of power that the Dudleys got to, followed by the depths of being branded traitors and indeed being executed as traitors and that sort of undulating cycle that the family went through. So I am very excited to be talking to Joanne today. Joanne is a writer, historian and broadcaster working on the history of Renaissance, Tudor and early modern periods. She is honorary senior lecturer at the University of Sussex and a BBC HR, uh, sorry, AHRC New Generation thinker. She has published with the Cambridge University Press Ideas in Context series and has been widely praised for her work on Thomas More, William Shakespeare, Machiavelli and Thomas Hobbes. Now, The House of Dudley is her acclaimed history of the Dudley family. It's been picked as a Times Book of the Week and Book of 2022. It's also number one on Amazon as we speak. Um, the House of Dudley also garnered excellent reviews in The Telegraph, The Sunday Times, Mail on Sunday, Literary Review, Spectator, and was featured in History Today and BBC History Magazine. Now, I was fortunate enough to hear Joanne talk at the Warwick Words Festival earlier this autumn in the beautiful surroundings of St Mary's Church, Warwick, only feet away from the Beecham Chapel where Robert Dudley, his wife Lettice, Lettice Knowles, and his brother Ambrose Dudley are all buried. Um, now, as usual, members of the British History Patreon Club have submitted their own questions, which I will put to Joanne at the end of the interview. That makes up the extended ad-free interview that all patrons get access to. Now, if you're not a patron and you'd like to be, there are plenty of other benefits as well. Please go to www.patreon.com forward slash British history to have a look what you can get and it's only five pounds a month cancel anytime you like joanne i thoroughly enjoyed your book i started reading it over the summer um so i'm i was i've been very excited about you joining me today to chat to chat about it so first of all welcome thank you and i've i've given a brief introduction to you already but could you in your own words tell us a bit about yourself a bit about your work please sure well thank you so much for having me on it was it was we've we've met in person as well which is a fantastic treat um so it's it's really nice to be on your podcast yeah i am a historian of uh the renaissance and early modern periods particularly in england which means 
the Tudors um, and, a, and a bit, a smidge of the, the Stuarts every once in a while. Uh, I particularly focus on cultural history, political history, what's called intellectual history, so history of ideas. And uh, House of Dudley is my first trade book. And and you've done very well, and we will we will clearly get onto that. In fact, I think as we speak, isn't it number one in in its its category, but like like it's quite a broad category on Amazon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm I'm very pleased to say over the weekend uh, it it hit the number one spot. Uh, so yeah, very very exciting. A number one spot. I think it's um, Tudor and Stuart um, history, which is which is. Categories. So I mean, there's there's lots yeah. of competition in those categories. Yeah, it's it's been selling very well, which is it's so exciting as a writer because I spent five years working on this, and so five years it was it was just mine. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I I was really really excited to get to share everything that I found, um, the stories that I encountered with everyone, and to now know that it's out there and that it's out there in a really big way mm. uh, is there's no feeling like it in the world really. It, it must be extraordinarily satisfying that people are finding it as interesting as as you did. I'm sure it feels a bit risky. <laughs> yeah, I um, it, it's a huge risk writing a book, no matter what. And I think particularly, obviously, that the Tudors is a is a well mined field. Um, there have been a lot of books written on the Tudors, uh, and to write a book from a different perspective on the Tudors, uh, I didn't I didn't know. I didn't know if people were going to respond to that or not. I thought the story was beautiful and compelling. I I I, I cried as I was writing it more than once um, because it was it was just so touching. Mm. But I didn't know if other people were going to find the same. And so to know, I have heard from people who have found it very emotional, who have also found it hilarious. There are a few funny bits in there as well. And so they've they're essentially taking the same journey, uh, reading it that I did writing it. And so yeah, I think satisfying. Is, is is definitely a good way of, of describing how how that feels yeah it it, it is great because you, you would think as it, with the Tudor field being so full of books that there wasn't you know as someone who doesn't write books you know was there any any new perspective that could be had and um I found actually your book and also Estelle Pronk's book Blood Fire mm. and Gold I had Estelle on recently it's a new look into something we think is familiar but from a different point of view it's like looking into a really familiar room but from a different window or something and um plus of course the actual stories that like you say you've uncovered and that that were generally less talked about so we're going to hopefully cover um some of those today without this going on for too long because i know you're very busy but um and we'll get into the specifics of of those things um soon but one of the things that really struck me when I finished the book was um how the Dudley family's fortunes parallel the Tudors whom they serve do you think that's a fair sort of the end thought that I had would you agree absolutely it was one of the 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 thoughts that struck me as I finished as well that there's a sense in which not only are they paralleled but I, I talk about them intertwining um, that they're paralleled because they intertwine, that, mm. that the rise and fall um, together makes sense because the, the Tudors were very much dependent on, on the Dudleys uh, for, for their own survival and, and fortunes. 
we only really see, I think, the, the safe transition of power and thus the establishment of the Tudor dynasty from Henry VII to Henry VIII because of the work that Edmund Dudley and others do to fill the coffers and ensure that Henry VIII has that money to establish his reign in, in such magnificence. Mm. Uh, without that, we wouldn't have the Henry VIII that, that we think of today as that sort of golden prince um, who, who loves tournaments and, and is able to go to war with France, for instance. And then they end almost together as well, and for the same reasons, that inability to produce an heir, which is precisely what, what both Edmund Dudley and Henry VII, I think, were afraid of. Uh, their grandchildren don't continue their line. Um, and so they essentially both both end uh, for, for that reason. Um, Robert Dudley dies in 1588, Ambrose dies in 1590, Elizabeth makes it to 1603. But essentially, by that point, everyone knows that the Tudor dynasty is, is over. Mm. Uh, so I, I, I think absolutely um, there's a sense in which the Tudors use the Dudleys um, either as their sort of right-hand men and occasionally women, uh, or they establish themselves by destroying a Dudley, by scapegoating one. And we see that that pattern repeated throughout the hundred years that this book covers. Mm. So let's uh, let's go back to the beginning then and Edmund. And um, <laughs> I... I, there aren't that many people in history that get me riled up because you know I'm, I'm perfectly <laughs> capable to of putting them, you know, where they are 500 years ago. But um, I, by the middle of chapter two, I was incensed by Edmund. In fact, I had to. I was listening to it on Audible um, in sort of the hour before I was going to sleep, and I had to listen much much further on because I was so riled up by by him I couldn't go to sleep so let's <laughs> let's talk about Edmund and um so you describe the methods I mean you've already mentioned there when Henry VIII comes to the throne the reason he can be so fabulous and flamboyant and do all the things mm. he wants to do which 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 portray this majesty from the very beginning is because Edmund Dudley has has filled the coffers rather nicely <sighs> let's talk about how how he does that, how he's done that. Um, please explain to, to everyone watching his methods. First of all, I mean, the audible is fantastic, isn't it? Um, the, the, the voice actor, um, I think it's Kristen Atherton, is, is amazing. So just, yeah. just a plug for her and, and for the audiobook. first of all, it's, it's brilliant. It was such a joy for me <laughs> to listen to it and she put such emotion into it. So no mm. wonder, I think, um, you, you struggle to sleep <laughs> yes, uh, yes, after, after it. It's so yeah. interesting because I, I didn't write anyone in this book as a hero or a villain. No. I just wrote sort of what was there and I worked really hard at that because it, it is difficult sometimes. Mm. Um, but you're not the first person to come up to me going, oh, that Edmund Dudley. <laughs> I can't, I can't take him. Um, <laughs> Uh, because I guess the sort of the, the facts just speak for themselves. Um, he he did some uh, unkind things, I guess is, is the best way to put it. Without going into all the intricacies of the laws um, and the loopholes that he was exploiting, which can be um, very confusing and uh, very boring to listen to. Um, <laughs> essentially what he was doing was... Um, taking already existing laws and using his own niche knowledge of, of them to exploit people. 
um, and to get money out of them. Uh, so people, for instance, who might uh, sign what was uh, known as a, as a bond uh, for good behavior, essentially, um, for five, say 500 pounds, ne never thinking they'd ever have to pay up that money. Edmund would use um, his informers or promoters to find ways of accusing them of, of precisely that bad behavior to get that money, for instance. Uh, or he would exploit technicalities in the king's prerogative, uh, which meant that small medieval, never been used laws, all of a sudden he was bringing forward and going, see, you owe the king money. And people are going, well, come on. <laughs> nobody, nobody has used that in hundreds of years. Um, but he, and he was he was using that. And, and in some cases, it was noble families who had the money lying around. But in a lot of cases, it was tradespeople in London who were just trying to make a living. Uh, and he and his promoters or informers were, were hounding them to to the edge of, of what they could could handle. And often they ended up imprisoned. He raised a vast amount of money for the king. In under four years, uh, he added 50% to the, the king's revenue, basically single-handedly within his account book. Uh, it, it's a huge amount of money and, and it's coming from him, him choking essentially mm -hmm. uh, the people particularly of London. Mm. Well, well that is okay. The, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll get annoyed. No, he, he, um, yeah. the, the, the story of the Sunnifs, I remember, vividly now this is mm. and, and i suppose it is a good example um if you'd agree of just the 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 process and the lengths that he's willing to go to so can you tell us briefly if you like the the story of the sunifs we have this story thanks to the work of uh, mark horowitz i should say who did a fantastic article recovering from the archives this story. So I, I'm very much obligated to his work in, in my recounting of the story. And as you say, it's a perfect example of precisely how this would work. So one of uh, Edmund Dudley's promoters or informers uh, was an, a very unpleasant man named John Canby. And Canby heard a story of uh, a baby being drowned in the Thames and connected this to the household of the Sunnifs, um, Thomas Sunniff, and I think her name is Alice, is the wife. Uh, Thomas Sunniff was a haberdasher, uh, meaning that he sold things associated with sewing, needles and thread and, and that sort of thing. And he had signed one of these bonds uh, for good behavior for 500 pounds. And so Camby wants to accuse the Sunnifs of the death of this baby to get that 500 pounds. He wasn't keeping the peace, he killed the baby. Um, or his household, someone in his household killed a baby. So to get this 500 pounds, and obviously uh, Edmund has made some sort of promise to the king that this, this 500 pounds will be, will be um, uh, claimed for, for him. And so Canby uh, captures essentially, imprisons, kidnaps um, a maid in the household and, and sort of browbeats her into saying that she was responsible for it and thus the, the sunifs. Um, she goes back and forth on her testimony very various times, but Canby has essentially kidnapped and imprisoned her in his own house. Um, Sunif is, is brought to, to Edmund Dudley at one point to try to, to, to plead his, his case. 
um, Dudley sends him off to be imprisoned in the tower. Canby actually takes him um, to his house for a while. Um, Sonif ends up imprisoned in two or three different uh, um, jails across London and ends up in, in the tower. Uh, he, he makes the deal. They give 300 pounds and more later, um, but that's insufficient, which is why he ends up in, this, in the tower. Essentially, it's just this, this prolonged process of, of hounding this poor haberdasher uh, for for five hundred pounds, um, and it it destroys his livelihood. He's still in the tower when, spoiler alert, Edmund Dudley ends up in there, um, and Edmund Dudley receives um, a, a plea from him, and and sort of says, "Well, I'm <laughs> if I could help you, I could." But he knows that he did wrong in the case of Thomas Sunniff. When he's in the tower, he's he's very reflective on on what he has done, as you would facing death. Uh, and trying to deal with some of that guilt, and he he knows that he 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 did wrong in the case of Thomas Sunniff. That that the report that he got was barely legitimate, um, and certainly couldn't support the, the case for the money, um, but was going going with it anyway. And he blames it all on the king. That it was it was the king who wanted this money, and he was just following orders. Uh, but uh, we don't know what happens to Sanif after all of this. Hopefully he's freed from the tower and, and gets to, to go on and, and live his life. But 500 pounds was a lot of money and a year's work lost while mm. he's, he's imprisoned uh, could, could destroy an entire family. So we, we just don't know what happens to them. Oh, and didn't they take the opportunity to actually go in and just take all his stuff while he was in prison as well? So yeah, they tried to recover the money through through goods and, and property as well. So it, probably his his life, his livelihood was was destroyed. And and that's just one story. We have lists of people who uh, who for for whom Edmund had had decided um, they they were going to produce money for the king, um, that he was going to squeeze money out of them. And uh, we don't know in every case what the story exactly was. We're so lucky to have this one in a way. Um, but for each one of those names, you can imagine a story like this. Oh, see, I'm, I'm, oh, the, the hackles <laughs> on my back. <laughs> <laughs> now, he he picks on people, you've, you've mentioned it briefly, but he picks on people from all sort of walks of life, presumably mm. down to merchants or, or, or uh, tradespeople because they have some money to give over. Mm. But, he, but he goes right to the top and as far down as he can. Now, when Henry VII dies, it becomes quite clear, I think, that he was his only protection. So what happens once he loses that protection? Yeah, Edmund Dudley does not appear to invest at all in making friends. Um, he has one or two people who are sort of looking out for him, uh, who help him get that position to begin with next to the king. But by the time Henry VII is falling ill and dies, most of those people have died. Um, they, they were sort of an older generation, friends with Edmund Dudley's father, for instance. And so his, his really his only protection is the king himself. And once he's gone, Edmund Dudley is is left exposed to his enemies, of which he has very, 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 very many, <laughs> um, including in in the court, uh, Margaret Beaufort herself, 
seems to have fallen on, on the wrong side of Edmund Dudley, or rather Edmund Dudley fell on the wrong side of Margaret Beaufort. No, uh, no so idea. <laughs> not, you don't want to do that. Um, so when Henry VII dies, there's essentially uh, a meeting of, of the powerful members of the court, all of whom despise Edmund Dudley, and and they decide that um, they're going to keep the king's death a secret for a few days while they smooth the path to uh, the extension of uh, Henry VIII. And as they're doing that, they're going to arrange for the arrest of Edmund Dudley. And so as the new reign is announced, Edmund Dudley is taken from his home in London and taken to the Tower. So there's often this um, uh, question around what happens next. Was was he used as a scapegoat, as a way of Henry VIII gaining quick popularity, or did he deserve what he got? A bit of both. Well, uh, it depends on what you mean by deserve. Do we mean the sort of the <laughs> well, the, you know, the, my the feelings on the skills of, of of moral and poetic justice, um, or do we mean by the law? Um, mm. Edmund Dudley was accused of treason, uh, of seeking to take the throne for himself, essentially, um, even even accused of regicide or or contemplating regicide. Um, certainly not. Uh, I, the the evidence is is sketchy at best um they they use the fact that there's somewhat of an armory in his house to show that he was planning some sort of military overthrow anyone of any wealth had a bit of an armory going on and and if there was any intent with with that armory it was probably self-protection um we're not that far since the wars of the roses uh and edmund dudley may have caught on to how unpopular he was uh and so may have been stocking up uh for for that reason um but they use that as as proof that he was planning some sort of overthrow um which is just ridiculous i mean edmund dudley was not a military mind um he was a lawyer uh and would not have been contemplating anything like that. Um, so the, the treason charges were entirely false. Whether he, he deserved it in some sort of other moral sense, um, I mean, I, I, I can leave that to others to, to decide. You might think so. Um, but uh, certainly he was a, a victim of, of a court plot to do away with him. Um, they... They knew that Henry VIII's reign would be tarnished in some way um, if it carried with it the, the unpopularity of the end of Henry VII's reign. Um, they needed to wash away all of that and have this sort of clean, bright, golden start to the reign of, of Henry VIII. And it's important they don't, he's not executed right away. It takes, it takes a year, uh, over a year um, that he's, he's imprisoned. Um, and it seems to be that it's only when Henry VIII goes on his progress and realizes how unpopular uh, Edmund Dudley and, and Richard Epson as well were across the country and particularly in those areas that are more likely to, to riot and rebel that he sends orders back to, to have him have him executed. So it does seem to be linked to 
the sense of, of scapegoating, of washing away those those sort of sins of the father um, to try to create a, a new start for this new reign. Right. That's fascinating that although he picked on people in London, his reputation clearly had gone further. It seems that way. It seems mm. that way. Uh, we, I, I didn't pick up any straightforward evidence of that but the circumstantial evidence is is that Henry VIII goes on progress and it's while he's on progress that he sends the orders out. Mm, that's fascinating so so Edmund is deemed a traitor he does eventually lose his head but the Dudley family so despite that that label of of traitordom although I don't know if that's a word I may have made that up um <laughs> the family fortunes are restored um under his son John. Now, is there a is there a succinctish way of explaining how that happens? I think I think there is, um, and it's um, the first instance we have, and there are many of the women stepping in to to essentially clean up the mess and and to ensure the family's survival uh, and and position. So uh, Edmund Dudley's mother was a woman named Elizabeth Gray Dudley. And uh, about a year, just over a year after her husband's execution, she ends up married to the uncle of the king, uh, illegitimate uncle. He's, he's an illegitimate son of Edward IV named Arthur Plantagenet. Um, but he's very, very close to, to Henry. It's Henry VIII has had partially raised him uh, and is part of his, very much his, his inner circle. And he marries John Dudley's mother. How exactly that happens, we're not that sure. Uh, I, I don't think she was just passive in it. Uh, Elizabeth Gray Dudley Plantagenet uh, was related to Elizabeth Woodville, um, who of course makes a very fortuitous uh, marriage to, to Edward IV himself. So uh, this is a family with, uh, I think, some awareness <laughs> of, of how to play court politics. And so I think that marriage is really what ensures that John Dudley is is restored, uh, that he he doesn't carry that stain of his father's treason. He's able to inherit lands, uh, and he also ends up in the household of Edward Guilford, who is master of the armory for for Henry VIII and a very very well connected family. And so he ends up in their household as as a ward, uh, and essentially develops a, a father son relationship with Edward Guilford, who who ensures his his education and puts him in in positions where he can he can rise up through the court because he proves himself in battle doesn't he as well and the the, the lawyer i mean that's ultimate loyalty as well i suppose absolutely he he proves himself on on the battlefields of france 1523 he's in the army of charles brandon duke of suffolk uh, and and Edward Guilford is is there as well as as master of of the uh, of the armory, uh, and he's knighted there on the battlefields of France, uh, and then returns back to England and participates in in jousting and performance and and all those sort of chivalrous pursuits that are so essential to the court of of Henry VIII, and and so it's it's through those means that he's able to to climb up and and really enter that that world that uh, his father had been essential to but peripheral to uh, John Dudley is, is is in there in 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 a big way 
we possibly should mention he was still quite young at the time that his father was executed so yeah. um maybe benefited from not having been you know you, could, you can't be directly linked to his father in that way he was still quite young, six he? he was six years old yeah. when his or six or seven um depending on exactly when he was born um when his father was was executed so absolutely that the, this the stain of treason is meant to follow through the generations but you know these these people understood <laughs> it was understood yeah. that that obviously the six-year-old had nothing to do with his father's treason and so i think he's only eight eight years old when um he is he's restored um mm-hmm. and and there's this understanding that it, it it's at this stage, there's an understanding that it's not something he necessarily carries. It is thrown back in his face several times when when he's older, and by the time you get to the third generation, there's this this understanding where the the, the treason and the Dudleys become almost synonymous. Mm. So, I mean, it, anyone who's not sure who we're sort of how, why the name John Dudley is familiar, of course, we'll we'll come back to it. But it's um, he was, of course, pivotal in in trying to put Lady Jane Grey on the throne. Um, and and the overthrow there, but we'll come back to that in 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 a little while. But um, one one part of the story that I wanted to touch on is about John's um, John's sons. Now we hear a lot about the the Dudley brothers. Sort of once we get to fifteen fifty three, fifteen fifty three, yes, and the succession crisis. Um, but so this was a surprise in your in your book, and uh, there was the. John's eldest son Henry, and this was this was um, we spoke earlier about people finding some of the book tear jerking, and actually, I wonder whether this is one of the stories that did it. Um, um, yeah, let, now he dies. He dies m- much earlier than we start to usually hear about the Dudley brothers. Can we just touch on Henry's story before we move uh, on? Absolutely. Uh, I had never encountered Henry Dudley either. Um, but I think his story is is very important to the story not only of John but but of the brothers later on as well. So he's the first son born to John and his wife Jane Jane Guilford, the the daughter of his guardian, uh, and he's named Henry probably for the king, uh, and he's educated uh, with other. Uh, young men of the court, um, the son of, of Henry Norris, also named Henry, uh, is is there, and they're educated by um, a, a French Protestant uh, who's brought over by Anne Boleyn. So very much a part of, of of that circle, and his participation in that circle is very important to John's connections to people like Anne Boleyn and, and Thomas Cromwell. Uh, when he's nineteen, he travels with his father to to France. Uh, to to Boulogne, to the siege of Boulogne, uh, just as John had travelled with his guardian, uh, Edward Guilford, when he was a young man. Uh, Henry's 19, so just on the cusp of of starting his own court career and and rising up as as John had done. Like his father, he's he's knighted in in France following the battle, and he's described as this sort of paragon of, of young manliness. He's, he's, he's charming, he's athletic, he's good looking, he's also humble. Um, and and he's, he's just taken to be this, this, this bright new future for the next generation of the Dudley family. Unfortunately, uh, they stay 
in in Boulogne after uh, after the battle. Um, John is is made governor of Boulogne. He's given the the keys to to the town by by the king himself, and his son Henry stays with him. And following the battle, as you can imagine, uh, especially after a prolonged siege, there's a lot of disease going around. Uh, you know there obviously had been um, many, many deaths in the battles, so there's corpses, there's what we now know to be all sorts of bacterias and, and everything else. Um, and Henry appears to get what is known as, as the bloody flux uh, dysentery. Mm. Um, and so he dies a very painful and inglorious death in, in Boulogne at the age of just 19. And, and John is there. Um, he he has to watch his son slip away from him in in this 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 really very horrible horrible way, um, and and without the rest of the family as well. So you can only imagine his mother, his 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 younger brothers hearing about it and being unable to 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 bury their son. Um, it's a real it's a real tragedy, and I think for for them would have. Put an end to to those great dreams of of Henry bringing the the Dudley family into into the the sort of the glory of of the next generation and and the glory of the court. Mm. It, it, on a personal level and a dynastic level, then it's it's just an incredible tragedy. Yeah. So um, now you mentioned briefly there uh, Cromwell. Now it, John um, benefits from. Sort of the patronage of, of Cromwell, their fellow um, sort of reformers. Now, of course, Cromwell doesn't do very well after the, <laughs> the marriage with uh, between Henry and Anne of Cleves. Um, but so, what did the did, did the fall of Cromwell impact at all on John's um, sort of position at court? No, well, it 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 may have done, but they managed to to, to bounce back. Um, so absolutely, um, John uh, Dudley and Thomas Cromwell seem to work together quite a bit through the 1530s. We have a lot of letters between them, or a fair a fair amount for given how how often these these letters survive. Um, and as you say, religion is very important to this as well. So the Dudleys are are seen as part of that reformist group um brought in largely by by Anne Boleyn and and Thomas Cromwell um and they are very important to the court around Anne Cleves as well that very very brief brief moment in time when she's she's queen of England uh Jane Dudley is is a member of her household uh John is her master of the horse so so Anne's arrival is is meant to be again this great moment of sort of triumph and rise for the Dudley family, but of course it it doesn't end up working that way. And so when she falls, there is this sense that uh, the well she she when she falls well when Cromwell falls really um, when Anne of Cleves is discarded and, and Cromwell falls, there is this sense in which the, the Dudleys maybe on the out permanently, especially because her replacement is Catherine Howard and the Howards and the Dudleys have this multi-generational <laughs> beef against each other. Um, they do not get along. Uh, the Howards are in many ways the, the great sort of antagonist to the Dudleys in, in my book. 
and and historically that that was the case um this old sort of noble uh conservative uh and religiously conservative family um seeing these upstart reformists like the dudleys um there is this this natural almost enmity between them um the 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 sort of the the benefits the 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 advantage for the dudleys come in in Catherine howard's fall the fact um that she doesn't last very long either um and that she goes down in a, in a very sort of spectacular um way that condemns really her whole family as well um the howards barely make it out of out of that one themselves um and john dudley ends up playing this very important role in her fall uh so when rumors start coming out about her sexual history um and henry instructs investigations um of of her her sexual past uh thomas cramner is, is sent in to essentially interrogate catherine howard and we have this amazing report um where he he finds her in floods of tears um she's obviously as you would be <laughs> anxious and stressed and she's saying all sorts of things at one point she seems to admit to um quite a bit uh at one point she suggests um that she was forced into sexual relationships which is i think something um that has not been acknowledged enough in the way that we treat Catherine Howard um and all of this Kremner writes in a report and he hands to the, to the king he hands it to John Dudley um that it's possible uh some historians say that John Dudley was in the room during this interview which of course would would be i think very very important for our understanding of of the Dudley role in all of this if he was in the room during that conversation um but either way we know that he's handed a letter to deliver to the king um and and that's one of the big uh sort of strikes against Catherine Howard um is is what she admits to in this in this interview and uh of course handing the king bad news um is a risky thing to do it it really could have gone either way but obviously it 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 secures the dudley survival through all of all of this that's going on in the early 1540s and john dudley is actually given the role of taking uh the king's daughter the lady mary out of the court um and and to the residence of of uh, the young prince edward uh and so he's given an important role in sort of cleaning up um after after Catherine Howard which is part of why um they continue to rise at the ends of the reign of, of Henry VIII the the other big reason uh, is Henry VIII's final wife Catherine Parr and the fact that she has a very very close relationship with Jane Dudley John Dudley's wife uh and 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 again that sort of the, the women coming in and picking up the pieces we see that again at the end of the reign of Henry VIII Uh, fascinating yes the, the the these friendships i suppose especially female friendships are not necessarily going to be documented because why like under what circumstance would they be and yet they're mm. pivotal in shaping things that are happening um i find that bit really fascinating so um so it could have gone either way for john dudley at that yeah. point yeah. um literally if it was shoot the messenger that could have been being it did i understand right that he not only had the the letter the the 
sort of account from Cranmer, but that there were bits in it that he had to, extra bits he had to verbalise that it wasn't all yeah. actually in the document. Absolutely. The, the document itself says um, that the, this messenger, John Dudley, I'm paraphrasing, will we'll, we'll tell you more uh, about this. So either, again, he had been told things to, to, to pass on verbally that, that Cranmer didn't want to commit to paper, unfortunately, very annoyingly as a historian, um, or he again, he was in the room. This is evidence that he was in the room and therefore able to say directly what had happened. Um, and so who knows what that that extra message was? Um, who knows whether it was just observation of what was happening in the room, whether there was some even more scandalous admission um, but John Dudley had that information and unfortunately never wrote it down for us. But he he was so pivotal to that moment. A real turn pin moment, potentially. So, um, so obviously, so then he survives the breakdown of the Howard marriage, outlives King Henry VIII. Um, now, in your book, you've got that portrait. And forgive me, I can't remember who, who painted it or who it's attributed Shall to I? with... Ah, uh, that's it. Yes. So Henry's in his, sick, <laughs> in his sick bed, helpfully pointing directly yeah. to Edward. So this is probably quite familiar to people. So you've got the Pope mm. getting crushed underneath there because, um, you know, we're not we're not going to have that back. But then you've got the men um, sitting to Edward's left, our right, as you look at the picture. Now the first one is the the the, the stood one, uh, Edward Seymour. Am I right? Yes, that's almost certainly Edward Seymour, um, and the, who becomes Lord Protector. And the second one, though? That's almost certainly John Dudley. So so can you explain to everyone, what's the role then that John is taking on in the reign of, of Edward VI now? As I said, the, the Dudleys are doing quite well at the end of the reign of, of Henry VIII. Um, largely that's to do with the relationship between... Uh, Jane and Catherine Parr, but also to do with the relationship between John and Edward Seymour. Edward Seymour had been there uh, on, on the battlefields of France in 1523. He too had been knighted. And it seems to be the case that from that point onward, John and, um, and Edward Seymour become very, very close friends. We see them working together quite a bit, um, property deals, that sort of thing. Um, but also it's the case that whenever Edward Seymour vacates a position for, for a higher one in the court, he sort of levels up. Um, John Dudley takes the position he's just vacated. Mm -hmm. um, and at least in one case, we have the letter where Edward Seymour says, John Dudley would be great for this. He's fantastic. Why, why, why don't you give him the role? Um, which is why John Dudley ends up in the position of Lord Admiral and he does fantastic things as Lord Admiral because Seymour has, has just moved on. Uh, so there's obviously a very close connection between these two. And that's very, very important because Edward Seymour is the uncle to the heir to the throne. His sister had been Jane Seymour, who gives birth to Edward, who becomes Edward VI. And so when Edward VI comes to the throne, Edward Seymour heads up the council, this, this regency council that is governing because Edward VI is too young to govern on his own. And very quickly, he becomes Lord Protector, king in all but name essentially. And John Dudley is his very, very close friend. And we see ambassadors talking about them as a political unit, as, as, as in the same sentence, as, as controlling what is happening in the court. So they're obviously working together quite a bit, which is why it's, it's almost certainly John Dudley is going to be 
sat next to Edward Seymour in in a portrait like that. Um, he's he's sort of his his right hand man. And I have to say, um, if any of you caught Becoming Elizabeth, that is something that I thought this this Stars TV show that's uh, just been on. That was one thing I thought they did really really well was to show this connection and this working relationship between Edward Seymour and John Dudley. I I, I don't think I've ever seen that portrayed on screen before. Um, and and it was it it's exactly the case that that that's how things worked. It's that's an interesting point anyway, actually. I'm thinking about generally dramatizations. You see political alliances, you see, you know, transactional relationships where you know, but you don't see the friendships, the actual genuine, you know, I'm I've, I've, he's sort of my kin. I've been with him since the battlefield, and therefore, yeah. you know, it's it's that's yeah. very interesting. And they absolutely operated like brothers uh, to the point where, under the the reign of, of Edward the Sixth, um, they they have their children marry each other. Right, um, John's uh, eldest son, annoyingly named John, marries Edward's uh, daughter Anne. Uh, and it's definitely not a love match. She's only 12. Um, so it's, it, it is this sort of dynastic alliance. And it's cementing, I think, a real genuine affection that existed between the two men. Though I will say it may not have still existed at the point that the actual marriage took place. By then, things were starting to break down. Right. Okay. Oh, so much we could go into today, isn't there? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> now, um, we're going to have to skip a little bit forward then because I'm thinking about now getting to Edward's rather premature uh, death. Um, now, he does, he gets ill and he's ill long enough to write his own device for the succession, which he sees as trumping his father's Henry, Henry VIII's um, will. Um, now, he writes this, but then we see him create alterations, the close or the, the, the more obvious that it, he's going to get there we go. But, and this is in his own hand, I think, isn't it? Yeah, this is so this own... is absolutely in, in Edward VI's own hand. You won't be able to see it very clearly. You can find it online if you look up device for the succession. But we, you can probably see there, or if, if you buy the book. If you buy the book. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, you, can, you can see he's crossed some things out. There are additions. It's all a bit messy because it's been changed. Yeah. So he's getting to the point where he's, think, he, he's realizing actually this isn't something I'm going to recover from. Now, and he changes, so he, he makes these changes. Now, ha, this is like one of those questions again that comes up about John, or some people just state it as, as they know what happened. But how much of a hand did John Dudley have in Edward's succession plan? That's a great question. Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> we don't we don't know i think that is the, the sort of the million dollar question mm -hmm. um it it has often been assumed i think and sort of dramatically portrayed um that john dudley by now duke of northumberland um he has overthrown uh his old friend uh, edward seymour he's not become lord protector but he's become lord president of the council so he is sort of running things um that he's standing over the sick Edward VI and, and either forcing him to write this or even holding his hand or, or whatever it might be that he is, he, he really is, is the, the secret author behind it. That has often been assumed because the device for the succession is very much in his favor. Um, the device for the succession skips over the, the claims of the Lady Mary and the Lady Elizabeth who become, of course, Mary I and Elizabeth I, and instead hands the throne 
to uh, their cousin, Lady Jane Grey, who uh, in May 1553 becomes Lady Jane Dudley because she marries one of the sons of John Dudley. So it, it essentially is a document that ensures that John Dudley's son becomes at the very least king consort um, and that, 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 that a new Dudley dynasty begins. Uh, so he's often assumed to have quite a lot to do with that. The problem is we don't really know the timings around when it's first written and when it's revised. Um, the revisions are what hands the crown directly to uh, Jane Grey, Jane Dudley. Um, and so we we don't know where it sits in terms of when the marriage takes place. So when when it would have been known that she would have been married to Guilford Dudley and, and all of these sort of complexities. Um, and, and we can't, we, we have no record that would tell us exactly uh, what role John Dudley would have played. What we do know, though, is that this, the device for the succession was not contrary to anything that Edward VI believed either. Um, we also know uh, that he was nearing the age of 16. Um, he definitely knew his own mind. Um, we have, he, he kept a journal. We, we know, uh, we, have, we have several letters from him. He, he was somebody who felt very strongly about things um, and uh, was aware of his own power um, and his own right as a king. Um, we know that he was strongly what we would call Protestant, um, as was Jane Grey. Um, and we know that he was very concerned about the throne going to, um, well, he didn't want it go to a woman. Now you think, okay, well, Jane Grey is a woman, <laughs> so what's he doing? But the original, the device said that it would go to uh, the heir's male of, of Jane Grey. So it would skip over the two half-sisters, would skip over Jane and her mother, and would go to Jane's heir male because he wanted a, a, a male on the throne, even if it was a squalling baby. Um, and that's because Jane was the only one who was about to be married or was married, and thus could already be pregnant. Uh, Mary and Elizabeth were not even close to being married, and were, it was very difficult to marry them off for all sorts of reasons. Um, and so it, it seems to be this combination of the fact that Jane Grey was definitely a Protestant, whereas Mary was definitely a Catholic, Elizabeth was a little ambiguous, um, but also that Jane was either married or about to be married and thus could produce an, an heir um, that that I think sits behind the device for the succession as it, and is entirely in line with what we know about Edward. So John doesn't need to have influenced it. He may have done, I, we don't know, but he, he, isn't, he isn't necessary to producing it. I think that's such an important point because... It's, it gives the account that John Dudley sort of forces him to do anything gives Edward no agency. And yet we know that he had strong opinions. Yeah. Um, it would have been an interesting reign to have, <laughs> if he'd have continued. Yeah. But um, yeah. <laughs> now it was only actually though in reading your book that, um, the, uh, that I've ever heard it from sort of Dudley's point of view and how, you know, it felt to me like they could have, they, they saw the genuine um, merits behind this succession, um, this, this succession plan. How likely, I suppose from their point of view, would it have been that Edward's plan would, would have succeeded 
equally not succeeded you know did they even think there was any risk in it not being seen through we we know so well jane gray the nine days queen um and the fact that it, it ends and it ends very quickly uh, and it ends almost very easily that that mary the first uh lady mary who becomes mary the first easily takes the throne back and it's I think it's almost seen as this sort of silly thing. Why, why, why would they have this this queen who obviously um, isn't isn't legitimate? You know, isn't isn't the the legitimate heir? And you know, what what is she doing here? But that's all I think with hindsight. And absolutely, at the time, even Mary's closest supporters were saying she's got two options: she can flee to the continent or give herself over. There's no way she could she can stand against the military might. That is John Dudley, Duke of Northumberland. I mean, by this point, he had established such an impressive military career that there's no way that she could have gone to battle against him and won. And there was no other way of, of, of taking the throne back, it was assumed. And, and so even her supporters are going, well, you know, um, this, this, this was this is going to be a very successful coup, clearly, um, because Mary's got got nothing she can do against against the Dudleys and and it's got the whole support of the council behind them as well nobody um deviated they all signed on to to the new queen jane it was it was going it all falls apart of course um for i, I guess sort of two two main reasons one uh the lady mary is incredibly popular and incredibly wealthy um, she is a huge landowner in her own right. There's been some fantastic work done recently to, to demonstrate that. Um, and she is she is very popular. Um, I think there's some residuals um, resentment for, for what happened to her mother and, and to her and the sense in which she, there's there's a justice involved in making sure that she she comes to the throne. The other is uh, in, in many ways the the unpopularity of, of John Dudley. Um, and so he's the one who sent out against the Lady Mary in some ways that makes sense. He is the, the foremost military commander in England at the time. Uh, but while he's gone, the council shifts. They, they, they change. They, they change their, their allegiance from Queen Jane to Queen Mary. And, and there is a sense <clears throat> amongst some particularly uh, those involved with the Howard family again there's a sense of glee in 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 the arrest I think of of John Dudley um so there is no battle uh, it doesn't break out into civil war which it could have very much could have done uh because the council shifts um and people start leaving John Dudley's army they they they, they don't believe in the cause of fighting for Queen Jane and so he he just surrenders um and is is brought back to London and, and imprisoned in the tower. Now, let's get on to Robert, because this is the first time we see him taking an active role. What explain to people what his his role was in this in all these goings on, because he of, of course lands in the tower as well. Yeah, all, all of the sons, all of the, the sons, there's five of them at this point, end up imprisoned in the tower together. Uh, Robert has his own um, sort of, I almost want to describe it as a side quest. Um, he has his <laughs> own um, part, specific part to play in this um, because he's sent 
essentially in another direction to capture um, the Lady Mary uh, very, very early on. So as soon as Queen Jane comes to the throne, Robert is sent off to, to capture Queen Mary, or at this point, the Lady Mary, who becomes Queen Mary. And um, But the Mary is, is one step ahead of them the whole time. Uh, she knows what's happening before it happens. She she knows where people are going. And so she's able to um, to to stay away from Robert Dudley and his the, the small force he has with him sent to capture her. Uh, so he's he's tried separately for treason, um, but he is still imprisoned with with his brothers. And as you say, this is the the first moment we we really see Robert Dudley acting in the historical record on on his own. Um, it wasn't his first um, military experience, though. Um, he had been with his father in putting down rebels. So he's he's already been on the field, which is probably why he's he's tasked with, with doing this independently. And he wasn't that old, was he? Was, am I? No, so he, he was born in um, probably uh, 1530, oh, you're going to catch me here, 32. Um, so he's 20. 21. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so still very much a young man. Yeah. Mm, but yeah, still young man. So, so John Dudley and his sons all end up in the tower. What happens next? Very, very quickly, uh, John Dudley is, is tried for treason. Um, unlike his father's treason trial, which was essentially a, a, a farce, it was, you know, it was entirely fabricated accusations. John Dudley did exactly what he's used. Um, he supported Queen Jane, took up arms against Queen Mary. Um, but there's this really interesting question that, that John Dudley himself articulates in his own trial, which is, even though he did exactly those things, was it treason? Because he was he he was acting under the orders of of the the Queen at the time, with the approval of the councils, and some of the members of the council are there judging him, right? They they were surely complicit. How can they pass a verdict on him? Um, when he was doing exactly what they told him to do, and he had letters and the seal, and you know he was he's operating entirely um, officially. So how how was it treason? And he he articulates this in his his trial, um, and they they you know technicalities, and they sort of say, well, you know, we're we're not accused of treason. You are, and well, she was a usurper, so her seal was no good. So you were you were obviously raising arms against the, the, the true monarch. So the fact that the whole, the, the, the regime change means the whole uh, landscape shifts underneath him means that um, it's a done deal from, from the start. And he probably would have, would have known that. What's really interesting is, is right before his execution, in fact, his execution is postponed to allow for it, he converts. Um, so he converts to the Catholic religion, to the religion of the new queen. And this is often taken as a sign of his, uh, his religious instrumentalism, uh, his lack of integrity, that, you know, this, there's this sort of last-ditch attempt to save his life, and, and in so doing, he throws away everything he believes in. I mean, I think that's one interpretation. I'm more convinced that he would have known either way he was doomed, and he's thinking of his five sons, his five sons imprisoned in the tower. I, I can't imagine he thought that this scaffold conversion would actually save his life. Um, I think he was he was trying to save the lives of his sons. 
by by doing this. And so that sheds a, a very different light on it. Um, he's he, but he's executed nonetheless the next day, as I think he would have expected it to be, um, leaving the the five sons still still imprisoned in the tower. Mm. What 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 last thoughts he must have had must have been yeah incredibly frightening for for them so um so we're now on to our third generation of dudleys <laughs> and uh currently they're all in the tower so um and they've got again yet again to overcome this um this stain of tracing of course we know guilford dudley of course gets executed but um but what about the other brothers what happens to them well, here, here come the women again um, to, to, to tidy things up and, and save the family. So uh, the, the mother, Jane Dudley, Duchess of Northumberland, immediately sort of swings into action. She's, she's trying to get to the Queen. She rides out to try to meet with her, is turned away. She writes letters to those around the Queen to try to save uh, first her husband um, and, and then her sons. Um, the wives of, of the sons uh, are, are instrumental in, in petitioning to have their, their husbands released. Um, the, the eldest sister, Mary Dudley, who by then is Mary Sidney, is very important in this as well, um, and particular, particularly her husband, Henry Sidney. He is part of the um, entourage who is sent to Philip II of Spain to negotiate his marriage to Mary I. And Philip II of Spain is hugely important to the recovery um, and restoration of, of the Dudley family. Because essentially, and what we suspect Henry Sidney must have said to, to, to uh, Philip II at this stage was, you're going to need friends in the English court. Most people don't like you. There was an entire rebellion that took place against this marriage that's what leads to the death of Guildford Dudley. Um, you're going to need friends in the court. There's this, this whole room full of, of Dudley brothers who are ready to support you if you help them be pardoned and released. Um, and that's clearly a strategy, particularly on the part of, of the Dudley women, is to appeal to Philip II. And Robert Dudley later says that, that Philip II was, was his savior, that he, he owes Philip II his life. So obviously this 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 works um and jane dudley duchess of northumberland on her deathbed writing her final will is is giving gifts to spanish courtiers um trying to remind them of their promises to to take care of of her children uh so in early 1555 um the three remaining uh dudley brothers the eldest john had, had died um he became ill while imprisoned in the tower guilford of course is is executed um, but the three remaining, um, who are Ambrose, Robert, and annoyingly another Henry, who we'll call Harry, um, uh, are, are, are relieved thanks to the efforts. Um, and we know it's thanks to the efforts of, of the women of the Dudley family. They, uh, they, they immediately um, follow through on their promise to Philip II. They're um, participating in jousts to, to sort of show that Philip II is... is participating in, in, in English traditions around the joust, and um, they accompany the English army to France to support Philip II's uh, army there. And so once again, we find some, some Dudleys on the battlefields of France, 
Um, and this is where we lose um, the youngest Dudley brother, uh, Henry or, or Harry. So we lose a second Henry Dudley in France, um, supporting the army of, of Philip II. And only two Dudley brothers return. Out of eight sons born, it's, it's down to two. And that's just Ambrose and Robert. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, let's get on to Robert then because he's probably the most famous of the Dudleys due to him being a quote unquote, a favorite of, <laughs> of Elizabeth the first. Now we know he proposed, we know he had, you know, he, he definitely wanted to, to marry her for whatever, I suppose, reasons people like to interpret it differently. But do you, where do you stand? Do you think she, lo uh, he loved her, Elizabeth, do you uh, think he loved him? Yeah. I mean, pulling, um, Pulling emotions out of historical records can can be a very complicated thing to do. Uh, however, what we what we I, I think we can definitely say say from the sources is that there was a deep, long lasting affection between Robert Dudley and Elizabeth I, um, and at various points they at least uh, suggested that a marriage was 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 possible. Um, and that uh, he was being lined up throughout her reign as um, as as a favorite, as as a powerful partner to her reign. However, that was going to be sort of cemented. Um, we know that that this affection existed for all for all sorts of reasons. I mean, their letters to each other are are beautiful. Um, her her nickname. Uh, for him was uh, eyes, my eyes, and um, in 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 the the letters he often uses that almost as we'd use a little emoji. <laughs> um, he'll if he has two O's in a in a word, he'll put little eyebrows over them. Um, <laughs> There's nothing and, new on the planet, is there? Yeah, the exactly. Yeah, yeah. Robert Dudley was using emojis before it was cool, um, and he, he'll use the symbols. He says, "Sort of forever, your." And then and then draw little eyes, um, so it's, it's very cute. And and he does that in his last letter to her, um, which she then keeps by her bedside until her own death, and writes in her own hand his last letter. So clearly, there there is something between them. What exactly that was, we we can only read into it so far. Mm. So just as a little bit of an aside, but what do you think he felt then when she put forward this idea that he should marry Mary Queen of Scots? Well, uh, it's such an interesting moment in time um, in, in the early 1560s uh, where there is a suggestion that Robert Dudley might marry Mary Queen of Scots. I can't tell if anyone really took this seriously <laughs> um, because what, what we have is, is both queens and 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 uh, certain commentators, you know, ambassadors and the like, um, thinking it's it's kind of hilarious. Um, Mary Mary herself uh, says at one point um, to the English ambassador um, that uh, you know she thinks it's it's I'm going to go and I'm paraphrasing. She thinks it's a great idea because then um, Elizabeth and her can each have one. Um, she doesn't really want Robert because you know obviously. There's this connection between them. Um, and she doesn't really want Ambrose because he's not as good looking as Robert. If he were, then she'd take him and it would be a perfect, perfect setup. 
Um, so there's, there's, I, I, I don't know how seriously either one of them took it. Um, and we don't know how he felt about it. What's quite interesting though, is that we do know he was very invested in uh, creating a relationship between Elizabeth and Mary Queen of Scots. Um, he's the one who tries to put together uh, a meeting between them um, in, I think it's the early 1560s um, at York. Um, he's, he puts a lot into this and Elizabeth sort of pulls out uh, at the last minute for various reasons. Um, and he's also late in the reign uh, writing to Mary Queen of Scots' son, James, who of course becomes um, James I of, of England as well as James VI of Scotland and, and trying to sort of facilitate um, that relationship and, and James as, as the new heir. So he's, he's very interested in, in Scotland and, and bringing together Scotland and England thinking um, forward and, and to the end, to the end of the reign. Uh, we also know just, just, just as, as one more point on this, that for whatever reason he has, I think it's in Leicester house, his, his London house. Um, he has that famous drawing sort of map of the death of Mary Queen of Scots husband, Lord Darnley, um, which, you know, if, if you Google, you can, you can see um, why he has that. So I think he's, he's sort of like, Ooh, dodged a bullet with that one. <laughs> but for whatever yeah. reason, he, he has this. Um, in his in his home, uh, so clearly it's something he's he's at least still thinking about. That's interesting. Yeah. Also, um, now so let's talk about Robert a, a little bit a, a, away from his relationship with Elizabeth because mm. it's interesting actually that I, I always think women get put in as a side note to to the men. In, but you know, let's be fair: when the women are in power, that can also happen to the men. So let's talk about mm. Robert a little bit now. When I came to see you in the beautiful St Mary's Church, um, um, we weren't that far away from a building called Lord Leicester Hospital, which I know mm. you, you managed to go to as well. You we probably have gone to it, but I saw the photographs of you there. Yes. Um, can we just? I know it's a little bit of an aside, but can we can we talk about the Lord Leicester Hospital? Why he established it? Um, and what it was for, because I think mm -hmm. this speaks to Robert as a person. Absolutely, Lord Leicester Hospital uh, is is in Warwick. If anyone gets the chance, it's it's closed for refurbishment at the moment. But when it reopens, I've seen the plans. I've walked around some of the work that they're doing there. It's going to be spectacular. It's going to be a really really wonderful exhibition. So so do keep an eye out for for when it reopens, um, and and do plan plan a visit there. Uh, it, it is established uh, by uh, Robert Dudley, who's by then Earl of Leicester, in 1571 as um, a sort of almshouse, a hospital to us. We, we think of, you know, A&E and, and um, operations and everything else. Hospital at the time meant more of a sort of charity house. Um, if we think about hospitals, hospitality it is this, this place where people can find hospitality uh, where they might not otherwise. And it's particularly for injured soldiers and, and their wives, uh, and they become the brethren. And, and it, it lasts till today. There are still brethren of, of Lord Leicester's Hospital. So this, this thing that he established in 1571 continues today, which is, is really, um, I think, a fantastic testament to, to what he had, had planned on, on doing and, and this charity that he, he set up. Uh, obviously, um, soldiers came back from from wars in the, the Elizabethan period um, 
injured, um, destitute. Uh, there wasn't a lot of money in, in soldiering. Um, and there was no infrastructure to, to support them as, as there might be now. Um, and so he established this as, as, as one way of, of supporting uh, these men and, and their entire families. He may have been inspired to do so, um, I would sort of posit, um, by his, his own brother. Uh, his, his brother Ambrose comes back uh, from war in, in France in 1563, um, I believe it is, um, heavily injured. Um, he ends up um, probably lame for the rest of his life and, and may even, towards the end of his life, um, have had his leg amputated. Um, and obviously there is lots of support um, for for Ambrose because you know they're they're quite well moneyed and and can take care of him, but it, it may have triggered something in in Robert to think about those um, who are not so fortunate, or even Ambrose may have made the argument um, that this is something that should be set up because Ambrose had very close relationships with the men that he he served with in in France, uh, so it comes out of out of that sort of environment, um, and yeah, it's it's still there today. You can go and see it. Mm. I'm very lucky actually I'm going to get to go and have a look this afternoon so um, maybe oh, do a little bit brilliant. of a video so if I yeah. mention it I will put a, a link from this interview to the hospital and like you say the but it will be open again um next summer so for everyone mm. to to go and see and um yes will be should be on everyone's itinerary I think yeah so an another thing that I think we should mention because this sort of wraps up what um the end of the the two dynasties mm. as we sort of mentioned at the beginning now in the Beecham Chapel I mentioned already Robert's tomb he's he's next to Lettuce Knowles and of course his brother Ambrose is in there but of course there's there's another tomb in there the tomb of the uh of the son of Robert and Lettuce another Robert the noble imp mm. um and their son predeceases them which must have been in incredibly um painful and they don't conceive again so so robert knows that his line is going to die out with him um now in the book you describe sort of that that sadness i think that that robert feels about having no heir now would it be fair to say there's some lamentation on his part for his lifelong commitment to the queen and that sort of leaving him in this position would that be fair to say I think by sort of the mid 1570s, um, so particularly around the time of the great Kenilworth celebrations of, of 1575, which is often seen as, as this last very ex expensive ditch attempt to, uh, to persuade the queen to, to marry him. I don't know if that's necessarily what it is, um, but certainly after that, uh, Robert seems to, well, he, he he does in fact marry not that long after. Um, and so obviously something changes because right before Kenilworth, he writes this um, fascinating letter to uh, his, his, his lover, um, uh, a woman named Douglas Sheffield. Uh, and she's obviously put pressure on him to marry her. Fair enough. Um, and he's resisting and he says, um, and actually maybe I'll, I'll read it directly because I think it's a really telling quote. He says, is there nothing in the world next to that favor with the queen that I would not give to be in hope of leaving some children behind me being now the last of our house? 
So clearly there's, it's, it's very passionate. He, he is desperate to have children and legitimate children, but that's next to the favor of the queen. There right. is there nothing I would give next to that favor. So obviously he's not willing to give up the favor of the queen to, to have children at that point. A few years later, he is. I think that's a combination of it being clear that the queen is never going to marry him. He does have a child with Douglas Sheffield and that child is a boy. So the fact he, he then is aware that he can have children. He didn't have any children with his first wife. So he may have not thought it was possible. Now he's had a child. He's had a son. He knows that he could have children. Um, and, and so I think all of that changes. And, and so he, he does, he does marry, uh, the T. Snows and, and, and that's his, 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 his only chance to have children. Uh, and the fact that he does have a son, they're obviously ecstatic about it, but then that child dies at about the age of three. And, um, there's a letter in which, um, someone is offering their condolences to, to Robert and saying, well, you might have more children, you know, it'll, it'll be okay. And you can almost feel from the letter, not only that, that Robert thinks that that's, that's pretty cold consolation when I've lost my son. Um, but he writes in it, um, that he doesn't think they'll have any more children, um, as, as he's now advanced in age. And obviously that's not a problem for, for a man. Um, it must be Latisse, but he's, he's talking about it as, as, as they are a unit in, in that, which I think is, I, I didn't expect to see that, um, coming, coming from the 16th century that he's, he's going to stick with her even if she can't have more children. And he sees that as, as him not being able to have more children as well. There's something really beautiful in that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Now, before we wrap up the main part of the interview and move on to the questions from the patrons, I just have one last thing now. Your use of descriptive language, and we've talked about as well on the Audible, the beautiful um, sort of performance of it, if that's the right term to use, um, is, is really brings brings your words to life. Now, I'm going to read a, just one short passage and then ask you my question. So it's the start of um, chapter four. Sparks erupted on the surface of the ornate polished plate as metal struck metal. The tiny fires reflected on the smooth blade of the massive two-handed sword before vanishing into the air almost as quickly as they'd appeared. The two men grunted as they heaved their swords up to strike again. And, and so on and so forth. Now, with that level of beautifully descriptive language, can we maybe expect a fiction book from you at some point? Oh, uh, I, I mean, not in, in the very near future. Um, it's very kind of you. Um, I, I definitely wrote this um, with fiction techniques in mind. Um, this is a nonfiction book written uh, as close to fiction as possible without not making it, <laughs> without, without losing that, that nonfiction qualifier. Um, I'm almost proud of the fact that in um, one of my Amazon reviews, um, which I don't normally read, but I read this one, um, they were they were so uh, convinced by my writing style that they were convinced I'd made things up, <laughs> um, which I haven't. <laughs> Nothing is made up in this book at all. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll take that as a compliment, I guess. Uh, I am not currently planning a fiction book. There has been talk with my editor about that, and I will think about it. Um, but the next book will also be non-fiction <laughs> but it's beautifully written and I think the oh, way you. you've done it though really has it's done something slightly different and it has brought it to life um it's really amusing that people think um 
think that it could be fiction when <laughs> the usual issue is that the fiction they think is non-fiction yeah. <laughs> well that's wonderful so before we move on to the questions from my patrons and, and leave the main interview let's let everyone else know where they can find you um online any anything you anything basically you want to share about what you're up to absolutely i have a, a website uh joannepaul.com nice and easy uh, if anyone else is still on Twitter, I'm still on Twitter, um, which is at Joanne underscore Paul underscore. Uh, I'm on Instagram at Dr. Joanne Paul. I'm on Mastodon. I don't even know how to read that out, but you can probably, <laughs> if you work hard enough, you can find me on Mastodon. Um, and so it'd be lovely uh, if people keep, keep in touch. I have a newsletter as well that I've just set up. You can sign up for that on, on my website. It'll be monthly mail outs with with interviews and updates and there's a, a book of the month book club uh, as well um, as uh, every once in a while I'll send out um, some deals and things like that and and special announcements that uh, everyone on on the mailing list will get slightly before everyone on on social media so you can sign up for that on my website that sounds brilliant I'll pop all the links to those in the show notes as well so that it's easy okay. for people to find you uh, I think what helps them get back into favor is the women. <laughs> um, and they do this fantastic job of, of sort of shoring up the family and ensuring its, its survival and, and continuance. Um, I had no idea when I started working on this um, that the women played such an important role. <laughs>